0: We're, um, as I recall, looking at the believer as a potential uh, of a new body in the future uh, and looking at some of the elements of these things that show that we're not saved in the realm of our body. Um, I think we've kind of already looked at the fact that we're, oh no, we're going to in a minute look at the fact that we're not saved in our soul either, uh, but just uh, further evidence to the fact that we're not saved in the realm of our body, and that salvation occurs, of course, in the realm of our spirit. And so our spirit is supposed to dictate the actions of our soul and of our body. And when it does that, we can glorify God in the right way. But when we act in uh, the realm of our uh, sin nature and our flesh, then, of course, those actions aren't going to look correctly. Uh, or, or correct. So um, let's bow in a word of prayer and we'll we'll get started and open back up. Um, what we're going to do, uh, just because I've been a little slow dragging and not used to the flow of this class, we'll probably at the very least go halfway through next week to finish out. And then uh, maybe we'll just ask some questions together to see how you guys, you won't have to have one of my famous exams <laughs> at the end of the the class. Uh, with that, let's bow in a word of prayer and get started. Father, we're grateful uh, for this day and uh, grateful for the grace that you've provided to us, that uh, we are uh, very privileged to be a part of what you're doing in your plan and purposes and, and definitely on the right side of what you're doing and being able to see uh, your grace played out in our lives on a day-to-day basis in which you empower us uh, to be able to accomplish those things that you desire We pray that as we uh, continue through this study in salvation, that it would be uh, helpful to us to understand all of those things that we have. And uh, not that uh, the work that your son accomplished just applies to our belief, but our faith and practice in the present. And so we we pray that we will be able to uh, uh, properly apply that so that we can bring the glory to you. And we pray it in your son's name. Amen. All right. And so the believer has the potential of a new body. Uh, We see uh, that the death uh, occurring prior to the resurrection provides a temporary body uh, for the believer. Uh, And I think we looked at that uh, as well as the fact that the return of the Lord promises a resurrected body for the believer. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 53. Now, what we wanted to get to here is that the believer is not saved in the soul. Now, that might fly contrary to a lot of things that you hear if you listen to uh, Christian radio or a lot of print publications that go out. What are you supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be out saving souls and <laughs> making sure souls are saved. Well, if those souls were saved, how could those people continue to act in a way that doesn't show that they're saved? Uh, well, I'll get a good answer. They're not saved in their soul, and <laughs> we're going to see that uh, from Scripture. And so first thing we want to look at is that the limitations, there are certain limitations that are uh, on the soul. Uh, and we see this over in 1 Peter two eleven, where the lust from the flesh, uh, these affect the uh, body, uh, the bodily appetites of the believer in which uh, your sin nature, your flesh is at war <laughs> uh, within you. And those things, as we looked at uh, Paul back in Romans, and you kind of saw a visual of this war going on, but uh, uh Peter describes it over in first peter two eleven an internal uh, battle within the believer and pick it up at verse nine just to give it a little run. he says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, which in times past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against your soul. And so these appetites that your body has, and they're unique to the individual, right? I have desires to do things that I'm sure Miss J would not even care to do, right? (laughs) The things that gratify my flesh does not necessarily gratify the flesh of the pastor and vice versa with Dave. There are things uh, that we like to do that aren't necessarily bad, but there are sometimes things that we like to do that, that take precedence over God, right? And so this war, this interior war, is going on, and it's uh, making its attack against your soul, where you have all of the senses and all of the emotion that you pour into your your being is where that war is is going on. And so he said, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against your soul. Um, we also see over in Jude uh, one nineteen that those working after uh, or those working after less are soulish, and not walking according to the Spirit. Go with me over to Jude, one nineteen. This is a very interesting book of the Bible, uh, in that it's, uh, of course, only one chapter, uh, and twenty five verses. But within these, he spends most of the book talking about these false teachers. And the intent that he had before to write to them concerning their shared or or common salvation, but a more pressing need to write to them uh, that they beware of these false teachers. And at the very end, he gives this contrast uh, between uh, how these act and how uh, the believers that he's writing to should be acting. And so in verse 20, he said, but you, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Um, Oh, I didn't go back far enough. Sorry. (laughs) Pick it up in verse 17. Uh, I actually went past the verse there. In verse 17, it says, but beloved, remember ye the words uh, which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk, Uh, After their own ungodly lusts, these be they who separate themselves sensual, having not the spirit. And so this idea of being sensual is being soulish. And so they're they're walking after these desires of their flesh. And that's what dictate their activities. Um, If you look at the unsaved people within the world, this is what they are, right? They are only limited in these things that drive them by their flesh, by the way that they've been brought up. And so sometimes it's going to vary with whoever you encounter, and you don't know who you're dealing with. Uh, but this this idea of walking after their own ungodly lusts uh, and separating themselves sensual. They have no ability but to live after the things that gratify uh, that soul. And so you see that here. Uh, really, <laughs> the way he explains it, it's almost an animalistic instinct to do those things that make yourself happy or that please yourself. And so he he says they separate themselves as as sensual. Uh, And so he goes on from there in verse 19 or verse 20. It says, but you, beloved, uh, building up yourselves in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And so there's a clear distinction here in the way that the believer is able to walk as opposed to how these can walk. We have a choice of whether to live out these lives driven by our spirit, rather than uh, being driven by our soul. Uh, And you see that clearly stated here. Now, uh, we also see uh, for the believer that there are provisions that are made uh, for the soul. And so he's not just saying this over in Jude, and you don't have the ability to do it, right? Uh, We talked about this in the sermon at church yesterday, where Paul asked uh, the believers there at, at Philippi, uh, to not be anxious he wouldn't ask you to do that if you didn't have the ability to do it, and the same is true here if you did did not have the ability to not be driven by your soul why would why would you be asked to do it? Why would Jude ask these believers uh to to not be driven by their soul? Well, we see the answer over here in the book of Hebrews in chapter ten and verse thirty nine that you do have the ability. Uh, To not be driven by your soul. And so the exercising of the possession of the soul is a possibility to the grace believer. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 39. Now, remember what's going on here. These uh, believers that the writer of Hebrews is, is writing to. That uh, at a point in time, were living out their present tense salvation in a way that showed forth all the things that it should. Right. They were accounting uh, who they were in Christ and these things that were going on around them were not affecting them in a way. They were able to overcome these situations. But he's looking at it now and they're not in the same place. He's having to admonish them because they've forgotten how to live in Christ. And so in verse 32, he says, but call to remembrance of former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions, partly whilst you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst you became companions of them that were so used. For you had compassion of me in my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and enduring substance." Now, again, depending on who the author of Hebrews is, we all have our preference and probably believe that this uh, is Paul. But the example is there of apostles that have suffered, right, suffered physically, suffered mentally, had all these things happen to them. And they're looking at that example and seeing these things go on and happen to them. And they're saying, you know what, if I live in my position in Christ, this is okay. I can make it through this and God's going to get me through it. And so they had had reached a point where they were able to see things right uh, as far as their spiritual lives were concerned. And 35, he says, cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which has great recompense of reward for you have need of patience that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise for yet a little while. And he that uh, shall come will come and will not tarry. Now, the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them that draw back into perdition, but of them that believe into the saving of the soul. And so uh, this idea of the saving of the soul here, not really the word for saving of the soul. And if you've been around here long enough, I'm sure I've been through this verse before and kind of explained it out. That word that they're translating saving really comes from the Greek word peri pueso. And so as you look at peri, perimeter, it means to go around something. And the word poeso, having the idea of a possession. And so to completely possess something. And what is he talking about here? What's that view? Your soul. We don't have to be driven by our desires and what our souls want to do. Our souls can be all over the place, right? Like what the pastor always brings up when we go back to the 80s and think of uh, Huey Newton in the news, right? <laughs> and they were they were famous with Back to the Future and all of those movies. But what was his his famous song? I like that old time rock and roll, the kind of music that soothes my soul. <laughs> well, here's what can soothe your soul: be driven by your spirit, and don't let those desires that you have reign over you. And you don't have to let it. You know uh, what's natural to us when we're living in our flesh is to let all of the things that affect us and affect our soul get us all off kilter. But the great thing about being a believer is we don't have to stay in that realm of thinking. And I'm sure each one of us has been there in a place where our soul can just get us all discombobulated and we're not in a, in a right line of thinking. But at the point that you realize that, that's the time to take your rational mind and put it on who we are in Christ. And it takes so the Holy Spirit will take up that battle for us. It's it's not a winning battle that we can fight on our own. And so you see that here, but uh uniquely or, or completely possessing our souls, we have the ability to do that um through our position in Christ. Now we also see over in Hebrews chapter four uh that the word of God uh which comes uh excuse me, that the word of God which comes from the soul and that which uh, comes from the Spirit, uh, are separate. And so the the Word of God is able to discern uh, between both. And so go with me over to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. I don't like the way I wrote that out. could have reworded that better. At Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. And so the pastor, uh, we talked about it yesterday. Again, we have a lot of ties here from yesterday. But looking at... Um, The the mission that the pastor is on, not only to sear a certain verse in our minds for giving in 2 Corinthians, but he's also on another mission to get all believers to read their Bible. (laughs) And so what is the importance of reading the Bible? You see another reminder here uh, in this scripture in uh, Hebrews chapter 4. But pick it up in uh, verse 8. He says, For Jesus had given them rest... Uh, Then uh, would he not afterward have spoken of another day? Um, There remaineth therefore a rest for the people of God. For he that is uh, entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, uh, as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same uh, example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrows and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Uh, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him uh, with whom we have to do. And so uh, could go on there, but uh, I think you get the point that the word of God is able to truly understand and separate out the thoughts of man. Now, think about a time, again, we talk about being discombobulated because we're uh, in our soul and, and kind of not in the right place spiritually. And think back to any of those times. I'm sure none of you guys have been in those times, but I have. So <laughs> I'm going to tell you, as I think back to that time, I couldn't make sense out of one thing from another. I couldn't make sense out of what was true and what was not true. But guess what? As, as the word of God is true. It can divide those thoughts apart for you. And so this is really the only thing that we can stand on. We can't stand on our rationalization. We can't stand on man's rationalization. We can only stand on the rational word of God because it's truth. And so it's able to divide apart uh, the soul and the spirit. Uh, and you see that here. We also see that uh, over in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19, the future hope of the believer is able to anchor the soul. Go with me over to chapter 6. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, that it's important to have a fixed object that we're focusing on down the line. And our future salvation is part of that. We have hope that we're waiting on. If we only had hope in this life, and, and Paul says it, uh, it, it would be very depressing, Right? <laughs> As you look at the thing, I'm sure this world is not what anybody in this room wants it to be. And I'm sure if you polled every Christian or really every person that's on the face of this earth, there is not one person that's going to come back to you and say this world is exactly what they want it to be. And so if it's not exactly what it, you want it to be, and this is going to be your perpetual reality, how, how depressing would that be, Right. And so our hope is placed on something that we can see fixed down the road. We have something better that's waiting for us. And as we think on that thing, it's able to provide an anchor for our soul. Pick it up in um, verse 17. He says, "Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things, in which God, it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, uh, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor for the soul, uh, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth in uh, into, or excuse me, entereth into that within the veil. Uh, And so as you look at it and and think about it, what does an anchor do? Uh, We were supposed to go on a cruise and we would have saw what an anchor did when we got to the port. I don't think it's going to happen. But that that anchor keeps that ship from drifting away. Right. And as we're carried away in our thoughts and our souls get the best of us, we can drift away either way. We're bouncing all over the place back and forth. There's no stability in anything that we're doing. But as you're anchored by him and by the hope that he provides, you can't be caused to drift away. The enemy can't get you to drift away. Our soul can't get us to drift away. There's nothing that's going to get you out of who you are in Christ. And so uh, we keep our our thoughts and our hope on our future uh, as Christians. And then lastly, we see that the believer can abstain from less uh, of the flesh. And this again goes back to 1 Peter 2.11. Uh, But again, they war against the soul. And so these provisions have been provided to us as grace believers. And we see this in the present uh, of our salvation. Now, uh, the explanation of tenses. Why do I keep saying uh, present salvation, past salvation or initial salvation, future salvation? Because I don't believe we're completely saved yet. And I hope we're, we're building this point by what we're seeing. If our souls and our bodies are not saved and we've been promised complete salvation, there's something more and something better that's waiting for us. And so uh, let's first look at initial or past salvation. We see that the believer is saved by believing the facts of the gospel. Go with me over to First Corinthians and we shouldn't have to go here, but we will. First Corinthians, chapter 15 and verse one. I'm sure most of you guys could probably quote this without without me needing to go here. I'm not going to put anybody on the spot. And in verse one, it says "Moreover, over, brethren. uh, And remember, the backdrop to the story here, as you read through this chapter and uh, the pastor has done a good job of going through it on Wednesday nights. uh, These Corinthian saints were having a big issue with resurrection. There is not resurrection from the dead. They had had this, these people come in and infiltrate their, their crew and tell them that there is no resurrection from the dead. And so Paul has to set about to explain to them the importance of there being a resurrection. And so he has to go back to the very gospel that he preached to them in the first place that they believed before to tell them why they need to believe in the resurrection. And so in verse one, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. He preached it before and which also you have received and wherein you stand by which also you are saved. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, How that Christ died on behalf of our sins, according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. And so he goes on to explain the proofs behind uh, what's true about what he's saying. There's people around that you can go and ask about it right now that would testify to the fact that he raised from the dead, including me. (laughs) I'm standing right here before you and I've seen him. He's alive. Uh, And so there's proof uh, in the resurrection. But uh, the gospel for our salvation, it says by which you are saved. When you believe these facts of the gospel, you are saved. Now, it doesn't end there. You're saved uh, and and there's a continuation of it into the present. But we want to continue to look at these uh, important parts of the gospel. We also see that the gospel is Uh, uh, shows forth part of the power of God to bring the unsaved to salvation. Go with me over to Romans chapter one and verse 16. And so Paul explained when he was coming uh, or writing to the Roman saints, the power that's behind the gospel. And pick it up in verse 11. So he says, Therefore, I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end you may be established, that is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I have purpose to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among uh, other Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is uh, not really there, the power, that the is not there in the Greek, but you can really say it's the quality of the power uh, of God. Unto the salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first. And also uh, to the Greek. And so you see here the power to being able to be saved or the quality of that power to salvation is in the gospel. And you believe in the facts of what Christ has done on our behalf. We also see over in Ephesians chapter two and verse eight, the believer is saved by grace and through faith and that faith being a gift uh, from God. Ephesians chapter two and verse eight. Now we've been in this context before to look at what we were prior to salvation. And then God intervened in verse four, where he says, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And so you see uh, our salvation is a result of grace. In verse 6, and hath raised us up up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show uh, the exceeding riches of his grace by his kindness towards us through uh, really there in Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the free gift of God. And so remember, uh, and always remember, uh, just in case we uh, think there's something good about us, it's God's mercy uh, that caused us to be saved, it's his grace that led us to it, uh, and we're saved by those things. But even if you wanted to get a little puffed up after that, you needed the gift of faith from God to even believe. You wouldn't have even believed the facts of the gospel without God giving you the gift of faith in order to believe those facts. And so uh, we see uh, in our initial salvation, again, a lot has been provided by God. We also see the believer is saved within the with an indication uh, of future salvation. Go with me over to Romans chapter eight and verse twenty four. And pick it up in verse 20. He says there, uh, For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who have subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. That word for children is really sons. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain, together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the spirit. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for, uh, again, not the adoption there, but the placement as sons uh, to with the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope. Or really there, you could say we're saved in the spirit of hope. And so it's, it's not necessarily by hope that we're saved, but in hope that we're saved. There's a hope that's waiting for us uh, from believing the facts of the gospel but hope that is not seen is not hope for what a man seeth why doth he yet hope for but if we hope hope for that which we have not seen uh, then do we wait uh, with patience uh, or then do we with patience wait for it uh, likewise the spirit also helps in our infirmities uh, for we know not what we should pray as we ought but the spirit uh, himself making intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be othered. Uh, But that idea of hope again there and looking forward to something that's coming for us in the future. Uh, We're saved and you have this hope that's remaining out there that we're going to be completely saved. We're going to put off these bodies that we see here now that that have limits to them and have a body of uh, no limitation. We're going to have a body that's not subject or or really a, 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 a soul that's not subject to our sin nature and being able to be influenced by it. Uh, and so there's uh, future hope for us still waiting there. We also see that the believer is provided a position uh, as well as possessions in Christ. And so as you look at both sides of being uh, our salvation, you look at the fact that we're in Christ, but not only are we in Christ, Christ is in us. And as a result of Christ being in us, we can show forth certain things. But we can't show forth that side of Christ being in us unless we access the fact that we are in Christ. And so what did it say back in John? Abide in me and I in you, and you can bear much fruit. And so we're not going to be able to bear anything unless we're abiding in him. Uh, And he was pointing to this uh, reality there in the past. Uh, Pick it up uh, or, or look at the first point here, the believer being in Christ. We see that uh, in Christ, the believer has been baptized by the Spirit. Uh, Go with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, and we see this reality. Now, Paul here is coming off of uh, explaining how the proper use and function of the body goes, especially as it relates to spiritual gifts. And so uh, it's all different parts of the body and different people functioning, yet they're all being worked by the same spirit and following after the same spirit to work those things that uh, God desires for them. Uh, But pick it up in verse 11. He says, but all these worketh that one and self same spirit. Dividing to every man severally or separately as he will, for as a body is one and have many members and all the members of that one body being many are one body. So also is the Christ. And really, you can add that article, the Christ there. And he's not just doing that to be funny. There's an actual body of Christ that's constituted of Christ as the head of the body. And us is the the body parts of the body. So (laughs) down here below and break out that way uh, however you must. Uh, But if you thought about it and and looked at it, we can actually do a visual. I'm not much of an artist, but I'll give you my best. That won't work. There we go. My kids have been up here. (laughs) There we go. Isn't that wonderful art? (laughs) So as you think of it, this head is Christ. And this, believers. And together, this whole thing constitutes the Christ. And so it's not just some fancy saying that he came up with. This is an actual living organism that we're a part of. As you look at the body of Christ, him being the head. And as it says over in Colossians, supplying everything that the body needs to operate And so as you think of our bodies and think of our brains and how they help for all the function of the rest of our body, that's how Christ is. Right. He's providing everything, the blood flow, everything that we need to do of his goodwill and his good pleasure. Uh, And we see that here. Uh, Also over in Galatians chapter three and verse twenty seven, we kind of see a makeup of what we are in Christ. And pick it up in verse uh, 26. He says, For you are all, uh, really, their sons of God uh, by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so, uh, what does that mean, baptized into Christ? We're not talking about physical baptism, we're talking about what happened when you believe the facts of the gospel. And so you believe those facts and immediately you didn't see this happen, but the Holy Spirit baptized you and placed you into Christ. And so as you, we do that physical baptism and you have a person that's dumped into the water and as he's brought out of that water, it's supposed to represent a new person in Christ, right? And so this is what spiritually happened in the spiritual realm. You didn't see it, but... But the Holy Spirit took you out of who you were in the world and placed you into Christ. And now you have a right to be part of this. You have a position in Christ where God is seeing you as seated at his right hand in Christ Jesus. And so this is an excellent and and wonderful benefit provided to us. Verse 28, uh, there is, and really uh, literally here it says, in him is. And so in Christ, as you're looking in Christ, is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so there is no distinctiveness that can be found. There's there's a lot of ways that we try to distinguish and separate ourselves in the world. There's a lot of classes and and other systems that people want to utilize to separate people and to make uh, certain people look better than other people. Or I'm I have this that you don't have. Well, there's none of that in the Christ. There's all what people would like to forcefully make here. There's complete equality in the body of Christ. And so it really doesn't matter who you were born from. God doesn't care. (laughs) You could be born to the best family on this earth. It's not going to impress God. You are who you are in Christ. You're all one in Christ. And so you see uh, complete unity. And so it says you have put on Christ in verse 27. Now, this is not always a reality. We talk about uh, tenses of salvation. It is a fact that when you believe the facts of the gospel, you put on Christ, right? You're baptized into him and you put him on. But the reality is when you're living out your present tense salvation, uh, he tells you in other places to put on Christ, right? Why is he telling you to do something that's already been done? Because you have to keep doing it. Sometimes, uh, as Courtney's living out his salvation, Courtney's seen, <laughs> and Christ is not seen. They see me put on Courtney, and it might not be a pretty picture <laughs> when that happens. But when I get back to who I am in Christ, and I put on Christ, and what you can see is him working through me, it looks a lot better, a lot better picture. And so uh, that's what he means by putting on Christ. We also see in Christ the actions accomplished by Christ are reckoned to the believer. Go with me over to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. And we see that the believer is counted by God to have died in Christ. And here you kind of see both sides of uh, um, us in Christ and Christ in us. And pick it up in verse 16. He says, "Uh, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even uh, we have believed in, in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, Uh, we ourselves are, are, uh, excuse me, ourselves are also found sinners. Is therefore Christ the minister of sin? May it never come to be. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Uh, For I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. I am crucified together with Christ. Now, we don't see it there in the English, but that's a huge word that's said there that actually has the idea of I was co-crucified with Christ. And so in God's mind, when, when we believe the facts of the gospel, he accounted it, it, it to us so intimately that it's like we went to the cross for ourselves. And so I am crucified intimately together with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. So there's a contradiction there. You are crucified together with Christ, but you're able to live. And but he's going to explain it for you here. Uh, But uh, nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And so you see that one side of it. I am alive in Christ. When you're alive in Christ, Christ is alive in you. When you're counted to have been crucified together with Christ, it can be shown that Christ is alive in you. And you don't show that outward exterior of who you are. You show that outward exterior of who Christ is. And people can see it in your activity. But Christ liveth in me and the life which I now live in, in the flesh. I live by faith of the son of God who loved me and gave himself on behalf of me. I do not frustrate or set aside the grace of God for if righteousness. Uh, if, if righteousness comes by law then Christ died in vain. And so the whole purpose of what Paul is explaining to these Galatian saints is you're not going to be able to do it by law. There's no standard here, the Mosaic law, that you're going to be able to set up and live to produce what you desire to uh, produce uh, as if you were living in Christ. And so it's two totally different things. Uh, over in Romans chapter eight, or 6, verse 8, we also see this fact that you're accounted uh, to have uh, died in Christ. Romans chapter 6 and verse 8. Now, remember here, I'll keep hitting it as I come through in this chapter, but as you're uh, attempting to overcome the sin nature, here's a very important uh, text of Scripture to remember and what you. An easy way to remember it is to know, reckon, and yield. You know for a fact the things that have been accomplished through Christ or in Christ for you. And so you can then reckon yourself as dead to your sin nature. And you can yield your members subsequently as uh, uh, members as unto Christ. But pick it up in verse 1. It says, what shall we say then? Now remember uh, the contrast that he's showing here. and What is he going back to? Uh, chapter 5. And we talked about chapter five before uh, this work that Adam did and that was counted to us and the work that Christ had to do that needed to be counted to us uh, when we believed. And so what shall we say then? Shall we uh, continue in sin that grace may abound again, may it never come to be. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us were who were baptized into Christ? or Jesus Christ uh, were baptized into uh, his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up out from dead ones by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in a newness of life. And so you see, again, as we're counted to have died and raised like Christ did, that his life is able to be seen through us and we can walk in that new quality of life. Verse five, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified. Now, As you think of your old man, think of who you were before in Adam and who God was counting as, uh, uh, us to be, uh, that the body of sin might be destroyed that henceforth we should, uh, we should not serve uh, sin. And really there you could say the sin nature. Uh, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Uh, now, if we be dead uh, with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he lives, he liveth unto God Likewise, reckon yourselves also to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so you can go on even further in verse 13. You see you can yield your members as a result of those reckonings uh, to, to God instead of uh, to our sin nature. And so you see here, uh, again, the believer is counted to have died in Christ. And it's a an, an work that we did together uh, with him. Uh, the believer is also counted by God to have been buried in Christ. And so we saw that in verse uh, four of chapter six. But go with me over to Colossians chapter two and verse 12. And we'll look uh, to this fact that we've been uh, counted to be buried with him as well as being raised with him. Colossians chapter two and verse 12. And pick it up in verse nine. Uh, And if you haven't done so, uh, make note of, I don't don't know how you guys do it as far as making notes. But a good exercise to do is to go through and look at all of these places where you see in him, in whom, in Christ. All of these, these are positional truths. These are counting who we are in Christ. And so when we say set your mind on things above, this is exactly what we're thinking on. The fact that we are in Christ. Uh, And so we're counted to be seated in heaven uh, in Christ. Uh, Pick it up again in verse 9. He says, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete. Where? In him. There is nothing more uh, that can be added to us when we're living in our position in Christ, uh, which is the head of all uh, principality and power, in whom also you are circumcised With the circumcision made without hands and the putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And really here in verse 12, I'm going to translate this the way that it really is co-buried together with him in baptism, wherein also you are co-risen with him uh, through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised us or raised him out from dead ones. And so you see that same A raising that was done by God of Christ is counted to have been done for us. And so it's almost, again, as if we had died on the cross for our own sins, that we were buried and that we were raised again. It's uh, so uh, intimately woven together with us.